Datages friends and family, have you listened to our December 6th episode? It's called Unleashing Your Inner Superpower, which is all about competitive advantage. If not, check it out and then come back to today's companion episode with a very special guest who literally wrote the book on one particular business superpower. Stick around to find out what that power is. Friends and family, as we record this episode of Datages, we're in the home stretch of 2023. I always find that these last couple of weeks of every year are some of my favorite days out of the year. It's not just about Hanukkah, Christmas, warm fireplaces, and eggnog. This is also a great time professionally to take stock, evaluate the year that is behind us, and make strategic plans for the year ahead. It's a great time to do so because the rest of the world slows down and it's hard to accomplish anything with outside parties regardless. My father has always closed his office completely every year on December 15th for this reason. During this time period of strategic planning and introspection, I could think of no better topic and no better guest than what we're bringing you today. Today, we continue the discussion of competitive advantage based on the datage, you don't have to be the best in the world to succeed, you just have to be the best version of you. And today's guest is a real pro who has her own superpowers. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Datages virtual studio, Meredith Elliott Powell. Meredith has been voted one of the top 15 business growth experts to watch. She is an award-winning author, keynote speaker, and business strategist. With a background in corporate sales and leadership, her career has covered several industries, including banking, healthcare, and finance. Meredith is someone who has diligently worked her way up from an entry-level position to earn her seat at the C-suite table. I really respect that. She is a certified speaking professional and a member of the prestigious Forbes Coaching Council. Meredith, a very warm holiday welcome to the Datages studio. I'm excited to be here and excited to have this discussion. Meredith, it's, it's wonderful to have you. And perhaps I, I should call you Coach Meredith uh, <laughs> as a member of the Forbes Coaching Council. That does indeed sound prestigious. Can you tell us about that distinction and tell us about the coaching and the great work that you do? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting that you would ask about the coaching because it it was for years, it was something I was never really formally trained in. I mean, I really came up through the strategy side of the business. But what I realized is you will never execute a strategy effectively if you don't develop the people around you. And coaching is really the way to do that. You know, the difference between coaching, I would say, and leading or managing is leading or managing is more in telling people what to do. Coaching is more about helping them find the potential within themselves. And once I really figured that piece out, that if you can tap into people's ownership, their inspiration, their engagement, that's really where I went down the path to learn more about it. And coaching is not a huge part of my business. I do other revenue streams are far bigger, but I never let go of the coaching because that's really where I understand the challenges and opportunities that are going on with my clients and my customers. That's amazing. And the world needs great coaches. You know, as a father of uh, two student athletes, I know how important their coaches have been in their lives. And that's obviously coaching in the traditional sense, but coaching in the professional sense is, is just as important. And I think back to 
a very recent interview that I did with Dr. Art Markman uh, from University of Texas. And he said one of the distinctions about a coach versus a mentor or leader is that the coach creates the structure and the environment within which people can grow and achieve their goals and succeed. And it sounds like you've done a great job of both providing leadership and mentorship as well as helping people in creating an environment to be successful. Yeah, you know, the thing that I find so exciting about coaching is the fact that every time I start with somebody, I never know who's going to end up being the star. I mean, I love the way that that was described as we create the structure, but whether somebody steps to the plate, walks through the door, that is 100% up to them. I'm sure your children's coach sees a lot of real potential in people that's never realized because they don't, you know, you have to have desire, you have to have skill and you have to have hard work and then probably mindset. And I feel like a coach creates the opportunity to have all of those, but the hard work is usually really up to the individual I'm working with. Some people are in it and some people are not. Yeah. Somebody's got to step up as the, uh, I'm thinking of the great basketball announcer, Dick Vitale, and he always says, you got to find the PTPer, the primetime player. So it sounds like you're always looking for your primetime players. Well, Meredith, let's dig into the book. I have it right here. I've really enjoyed reading Thrive, Strategies to Turn Uncertainty to Competitive Advantage. In the solo cast that I did on Competitive Advantage, we talked a lot about different forms of competitive advantage from mastering imperfect information to gaining an education to simply hard work, as we were talking about a moment ago. I never would have thought to include uncertainty as a possible competitive advantage. This seems like a paradox to me. At a high level, can you please share with the Datages friends and family how they can view uncertainty as an opportunity to create a competitive advantage? I think competitive advantage and opportunity lies in what everybody else views as an obstacle. And if you know anything about uncertainty, you will know that most people view it negatively. And so advantage comes when you can take what other people view as what will prevent them from growing and start to view it as something that can propel you in growth. Back in 2018 and 2019 is when I started researching and studying uncertainty. And I came up with the idea because every client I was talking to was having their best year on record. I mean, in 2018 and 2019, we didn't have any of the things we have going on today. We didn't yeah, have good times, right? We, yeah, we didn't have war. We didn't have high interest rates. We didn't have inflation. We didn't have geopolitical tensions. We didn't have any of these things. And we were uh, pre-COVID. Exactly. We were pre-COVID. Everybody, we didn't even have labor issues. And everybody was just tunning it. But every client I spoke to, said the same thing to me when I said, how's business? Everybody said, oh my God, we're having our best year on record, but oh, this uncertainty. And I thought the moment that you believe that something will prevent growth. And I just started to think if you started to flip the script on uncertainty, if you believe that it led to opportunity, could it be your competitive advantage? Turns out again. Wow, that's amazing. And you obviously you go a long way in the book to explain all of that. Really, when I hear what you're talking about, I think almost philosophically about stoicism. Uh, it reminds me of Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way, where he describes the 
things that challenge us the most are actually the pathways to growth and success. And your, your writing goes hand in hand with that concept. And I'm a, a big believer in, in Stoic philosophy. And, and I really valued that messaging that came across loud and clear in your, in your book as well. No, it's just, it's so true. I love the, I love the title. The obstacle is the way. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, it's on my top 10 list. Okay, so, good. Uh, if you want to check it out, Ryan Holiday is great. So I actually want to read something from your book. I'm on page 39, and the se this section is called Uncertainty is a Constant. It says, if I were an economic meteorologist, I would look you in the eyes with complete confidence and tell you this, your forecast includes a 100% chance of uncertainty. So when you talk about uncertainty, what is that specifically? And what distinguishes uncertainty from just bad stuff that happens in life. And perhaps you can give a couple of examples from the book or from your years of uh, professional coaching and mentorship of, of how a particular instance of uncertainty, as you've defined it, can be turned to someone's advantage. So I, what distinguishes uncertainty from just bad stuff that happens in life is that sometimes uncertainty is a positive. And what I mean by that is I was working with a company not long ago, and because we have learned to predict the changes coming in the marketplace, we saw a merger and acquisition of one of our largest competitors coming six months before it came. Well, that led to a huge opportunity because there's never been a merger and acquisition that didn't disrupt customer experience like crazy. So we were able to change how we approached sales and things like that. Here's something that I've just been laughing about lately. Everybody is debating whether we're in recession or whether we're not in recession, whether what 2024 will hold or anything like that. And I think to myself, what does it matter? The economy went up, it will eventually go down. What you need to do is to be prepared. And so my feeling on uncertainty and what really distinguishes it from bad stuff is that if you can predict the uncertainty and you don't even have to do it accurately, you just have to be an agile person preparing for change, preparing your business for change, any disruption coming, you can find the opportunity in it if you give yourself enough time, energy, and resources. So all this debate over what is going to happen just makes me laugh because I'm like, you need to be prepared anyway. Anybody will tell you the times in their life when major disruption happened, it just came out of the blue, whether it's a death in the family, whether it's an illness, whether it's you know a machine blowing up at work. It wasn't something that you expected. How can you build a team that is nimble to handle these things? And you said something in there that I found really interesting. You were talking about the ability to predict uncertainty and predictable uncertainty or predicted uncertainty sounds like a total oxymoron, but like any oxymoron, there's an element of truth baked into that about how important that could be. I think it's a great concept and a, a great idea. Yeah. You know, in the book, we highlight Jim Beam whiskey. And I love this story because everybody who tells me you don't understand what I'm going through, when I talk about the fact that Jim Beam navigated prohibition successfully, and in fact, he was the only one of his competitors who did, nobody's headed as bad as Jim Beam with the government threatening to put you out at any moment. Now, he didn't know that prohibition would become law. In fact, he didn't even believe that prohibition would become law. But predictable uncertainty is that you plan for what if. So let's take a marketplace. What if a new competitor came into the market? 
what if inflation really did a number on your prices or something or you know on your customers and if you can plan for what if it isn't about predicting uncertainty accurately but if you condition your brain for uncertainty when uncertainty hits you're more comfortable with uncertainty i think about i was a boy scout growing up and i yeah. think about the scouts motto yes. uh, always be prepared Always be and prepared. So I guess what you're saying, if I could translate it to a bit of a quip, is uh, you don't have to be a fortune teller. You just have to be a Boy Scout. Yes. Yeah, really well said. It's kind of like we went, I took a group of young women with the Boy Scouts out to your, out to Philmont in New Mexico. We went on that 10-day back, back trip. Now, they told us to be prepared for anything. We never had snow, but we were prepared for snow because it could happen. And so it's the same with our businesses. And what I tell people in the book is people hate change because we're all sitting there waiting for it to happen. Whereas if you got a little bit in shape for it, you may not love it, but it's not going to come hit you upside the head and you feel a level of control. And that's why we hate uncertainty. We feel out of control. You're a great storyteller, Meredith. And, and there are two things that I really love about your book. One is that you give very specific case study examples, like you are sharing with us here today, to illustrate each of your concepts. And, and the second thing is that you give really specific, actionable advice to the readers so that they can implement your strategies in their own lives and their own companies. I'm sure these elements are very much by design and not by accident. Am I right? Yeah, they very much so are. You know, years ago, before I got into the work that I do, became a writer and a speaker and a coach, I worked in corporate America. And I can't tell you how many times somebody would hand me a book or tell me to go listen to a speaker. And it was really nice information, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I feel like when people give me something such as their time, it's very precious. And I want them to be able to execute what they're learning. And I think story backed up by action is the way to do it. And I, I love that you brought that up because I think that's really important for any leader here. Just because you speak positively about change, just because you speak positively about uncertainty, don't expect that people will make the leap and the connection of how to execute on that. Be as plain and as direct as you can possibly be. And story is what people remember. It emotionally engages them to whatever it is that you're talking about. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't remember a lot of the lectures I yeah. had in college, but I remember most of the stories my mom read to me growing up. Yeah. And I think story is such a level of understanding. I mean, we were talking about Jim Beam and I talk about, you know, condition yourself for change and I give you a tool on how to do it. But when I talk about how Jim Beam walked through an expected prohibition, I can watch my audiences or my teams, the, the light bulb go on in their head because a story is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just what makes it make sense. Well, and it's clear you've really worked on cultivating these skills and the way that you communicate your knowledge. How did you put in the work to develop your own superpowers of communication and coaching to be able to communicate so illustratively and, and constructively as we're talking about right now? I think that there's, I think there's a little natural talent. I think there's a little natural talent in there, but I really started, and, and you know, this happened a lot for me during COVID is that everybody during COVID, when we started doing virtual, everybody was like, you've got to have this technology and this technology and this technology. But I thought to myself, the most watched YouTube videos out there are Brene Brown and Simon Sinek. And Simon Sinek stands there with a flip chart 
and Brene Brown uses nothing. So that was when I realized at that point, this has nothing to do with the bells and whistles behind you. This has everything to do with how you craft it. Now, I am a member of the National Speakers Association. And in my opinion, it's home to the best storytellers, the best um, presenters out there. And the last thing I'm going to say about that is that I believe since I started my career, I was very mindful of the fact that people can Google anything I say. So how I say it matters as much as, if not a little more than what I say. That's amazing. And, you know, I think back as you're talking about how simple it can be to communicate yeah. effectively. I mean, you look at the tradition of storytelling and take it all the way back to like yeah. the Iliad and the Odyssey and the bards and people that told lessons and educated people through stories. I don't think they had PowerPoint. At that yeah, time. no, <laughs> I don't think so either. I don't think so. I don't think so either. Yeah. In Thrive, you lay out nine key steps to managing uncertainty. And, and I'm not going to go through all nine here today because one, we don't have time. And two, I really think the data just friends and family should check out your book for themselves. But I do want to focus on a few of the key points because they really resonate with me and they actually coincide with more than one of our datages we've covered in the past. It was really remarkable to me how aligned your vision of the pathway to professional success is with my own. So I want to go through a couple of these things and highlight some of the ones that resonated with me the most. So the very, very first strategy that you highlight is be relentless about your vision. I love the way you state that. The datages version of this is anything worth doing is worth overdoing. I think this is actually our, our second datage that we ever did. And you did a great job and thrive of articulating the differences, particularly among vision, mission, and values. Can you explain these terms in the corporate or professional sense for the friends and family and explain why a well-articulated vision in particular is so critical? Yeah, you know, vision, mission, values, vision, mission, especially are probably the most confused things people have. A vision is your big dream. It's your big goal. It's what you see and where you're going to land. A mission is how you do it. So take my business and take datages. We could have the same vision. But our mission, how we choose to achieve that would be different, you know, like perhaps, and then your values. Oh my gosh, I've become obsessed with values. They are your promise to yourself, to your team and to your customers. They are the way that you do business. They're what differentiate yourself. And it is so easy to state your values and it takes a lot of courage to live, you know, to live to your values. Uh, but when you live to your values, your customers find you, the right team members find you. When you do not, you confuse the audience. You know, how many times have you seen a company have, we honor our customers as a value, and then people are rude to you, or they don't return your phone call, or they don't. That just says to me, I don't know who you are. But I always, in the book, I use the example of Chick-fil-A because a lot of people have problems with their values. And so it's not about that. I, please don't send Dadage's letters about you don't agree with Chick-fil-A. But I love the fact that when the media took them to task for their values, their lines went round the building because people who aligned with them found them. And so really get clear on who you are and live to that. 
It's a great message. And, you know, I'll tell you that I uh, have done business with Chick-fil-A. I'm a retail developer and they're one of the clients that we have unsuccessfully tried to work with in the last couple of years. And it's a conversation for offline. All I will share here is I worry that there is starting to be within their lower ranks, some erosion of those values. And I think that's one of the hardest things is once you've established those values, really keeping the focus, not just for yourself as a leader, but maintaining that within your entire organization. And and you talk a lot about that in the book and how to distill that down and to share it with everyone in your organization as well. And so I encourage the data, just friends and family to, to check those things out in the book and learn more about it. But I love what you said about being obsessed with values. It's really a, a great notion and it brings me back and we're going to talk about coaching now again for a moment. It brings me back to one of the greatest coaches, one of the greatest men that I've ever known, who is unfortunately the late Buddy Tevens, who just passed this last year, who was an amazing football coach at Dartmouth. And he recruited one of my sons. And I got to meet him during that recruiting process. And I talked to him at length about how much I loved what he brought to the recruiting process and the energy and the culture around that team at Dartmouth. And what he used to say, and I love this, is Chad... I love it when people catch us in the act of being ourselves. And an amazing saying to me about building a culture, holding on to that culture and living the culture and living what you say, just as you said. I think that's so important. And he's such a great man. And uh, the world is a lesser place for not having him on it. I love what you're saying about values. I don't, I really want to reiterate that point is that so often I go into a company and the people who work on the front line and the CEO are on the same value plane and the people in the middle mess it up. So if you are a CEO listening, I mean, I think, you know, we talked about Walmart before we, before we got on here, when Sam Walton was alive, you could feel the values throughout those stores, but they've lost it. And it's um, when you stop holding people, Jack Welsh used to use a grid where he would hold people accountable to the values and, and their performance. And when you don't hold them so closely aligned to that, you will lose it. And I think in the world we live in today, values are probably more important than they have ever been. One thing though, I did want to add about vision. It was my biggest surprise in the book, my biggest shock. And that was that success isn't logical. It isn't logical at all. So if you have a vision, if you have money, resources, and a great product, I have no money. I have a couple of resources and I have an okay product, but I have a strong vision that I am relentlessly focused on and you don't have a vision at all. I'll make it and you won't. That is how powerful vision is. I looked at when I started researching companies, I was like, how did that company make it through world war two? That's insane. But it was this relentless vision of the CEO and helping people see what was possible. Vision is so incredibly, your mind truly will find what it is focused on. Very powerful words, particularly for those of us that lead organizations. And it's a great segue because I wanted to talk about chapter eight, where you focus on strengthening your team. And this is really what we're saying about going through these exercises and being able to pass all this through your organization. You talk about cultivating an environment where people can be their best. Uh, And the corresponding datage, again, this is a topic that I feel passionately about as well. We talked about responsibility is a luxury. Accountability is the price you pay for it. 
We did a whole series on this topic because in my organization, the responsible, accountable mindset is a fundamental value and principle of our organization. And I have to tell you that I also appreciate because I'm looking not only back at my organization in the past, but you really motivated me and inspired me because I'm looking ahead as well. I'm in the process, as Datage's friends and family knows, of uh, creating a new organization in Europe. I'm moving my business to Central Europe to take advantage of economic opportunities there. And we'll be performing the same type of commercial real estate development I've done in the United States, but we're doing it in a different environment, a different culture, and with a different mindset and approach. And you lay out in the chapter that I'm talking about a series of exercises for one, communicating purpose, two, instilling ownership, and then three, providing value. And after reading that chapter, I set the book down for a minute, I ran to my computer, and I sent out an email literally in that moment because I reached out to, to my partners in Europe and scheduled during my next trip in January to go through these exercises with them and invited them to participate and shared with them how much I valued the input that they could bring to that process. So I thank you for both inspiring me and also sharing this information with everyone else. And maybe you can explain these processes I've talked about a bit further for the friends and family and, and what you can achieve through investing time in, in cultivating your team in this manner. When I researched the book, another thing that I found truly fascinating was every single organization I researched at every single step of the growth of their business always had a succession plan in place. They always knew who would take over. So here in the United States of America, when the American Revolution happened, some of those businesses I researched were loyal to England, loyal to the king, and they were forced to leave the US, but they had somebody in place ready to take over their business because they believed they would return. This mindset that the CEO owns talent development, that it is your passion. The other thing is that we all know that in 2021, 47 million people voluntarily left their jobs. And now two in five, I think Gallup says, are already looking for another opportunity. Everybody says that's negative. I smell opportunity because what that tells me is it is not a job people are looking for. It is an environment. And that is what these exercises are about. You, it, do not recruit talent until you create the right culture. You need to have a sales mindset with employees. You do not go out and find new customers if your customer experience is bad. You fix the customer experience first, right? So number one in, in creating the right environment, I can find a job, know that. So if this feels like a job, I'm out of there. So Number one is purpose. People want to do something bigger than themselves. We're back to that relentless vision. Am I a part of something? Please do not hire me to put a widget in a box. Hire me because when I put that widget in a box, I change lives. Probably one of the most fascinating things I learned, there's a lot of them I keep saying, Chad, but uh, the most disengaged employees in the United States of America work for the federal government. That is a job that is guaranteed with a pension, with retirement. But the most engaged work for um, nonprofits. Here's the difference. If you ask somebody who works for the federal government what they do, they'll tell you, I work at the post office or I collect taxes or something like that. You work, you talk to somebody who works for a nonprofit, no matter what they do, they will sell, tell you they save dogs and cats, they help people at the end of life, they will tell you their purpose. You need everybody who works for you connected to the purpose and you need to be relentlessly focused on that purpose. That is what makes me go, I want to help Chad build his business. 
And once we get there, you got to understand as leaders, you are blocking your employees from helping you. People actually want to work harder for you. You are in the way. And that's the ownership piece, the responsibility piece that you talked about. As a leader, you've got to learn to lead through the power of the question. Everything that keeps you up at night, you need to take it to your team in the form of a question. How do we drive sales? How do we attract new employees? How do we crack this market? How do we drive efficiency in our organization? And let people tell you how to do those. Now, a couple of things are going to happen. The most important is they're going to care because you could have the best idea in the world, Chad. I don't care if it's hard and I don't want to do it if it's hard. But if it's my idea, now I'm excited. I should feel like you work for me, not like I work for you. That's when you are on it. The other thing that's going to happen is the people that work for you are going to have dumb ideas. But this is your chance to teach them how to think. And that is really your job. You need 10 people who are better at you than what you do. And then the last piece, that value piece, is the biggest thing that people want is support and accountability. They want the skills and training to do their job. And then they want you to be truthful with them. They want you to tell them when they're not doing a good job. And they want you to, to tell them what they need to do a good job. And then they want you to get rid of the people on the team who aren't pulling your weight. For sure. You only want to be working with the best and best environment with the best people. Again, I'm laughing because I see how aligned, as you said, we may each have a different pathway, but you and, you and I have arrived at a lot of the same destinations and conclusions. One of the things I always tell people in my company is that my only job, one job description on me as the CEO is I'm here to make you more productive at doing your job. And I tell everyone in my company, manage up. I rely upon you to manage me. When I give you something to do, and this is part of that responsible, accountable mindset, you own what I have given you to do and treat me just as a resource, like any other resource out there for helping you achieve what you now own and what you're responsible for. I'm, I'm sitting here echoing back everything you're saying because I've found it to be so valuable in the foundation and the fabric of my organization as well. Yeah, if you want people in your organization to care, then let things be their ideas. And again, sometimes their ideas will be good, sometimes they won't, but that's where you're teaching them the process of thinking. Years ago, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, waiting to meet with a CEO, and I read an article about John Chambers, who's CEO of Cisco at the time. And he was telling a story about the fact that he was dying. He didn't, he, a teacher, he technically had dyslexia, but nobody knew what that was when he was young. And a teacher told him that she said, John, I don't know what's wrong. You're a very bright boy, but I think the only way that you're going to be successful in life is if you learn to ask people for help. And to this day, some of the brightest minds work for John Chambers and they work for him because that's just how he leads. What do you think? What are your ideas? What would you do? I, every time I do that exercise, I always say to people as the leader, how did that feel to get to release, you know, to get to put your problems on the table? They're like, oh my God, my stress level went way down. And then I ask people who are asked for their ideas and opinions. They're like, I felt like I mattered. Like I was valued. You want to win the war on talent? Go that direction. Yeah. Again, I mean, one of the things I catch myself saying all the time is that there is so much more value in a really good question than there is in a really good answer. 
And, and the other thing that, that I loved uh, that I was thinking about uh, as you were talking is I took some of the story that you were sharing and distilling it down again into a statement to summarize what you said, which is that it seems like a really good leader can take any bad idea and turn it into a pathway to future good ideas. It seems to me that that's one of the fundamental characteristics of a leader is to, to help the team grow in the way that you've described. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I'm old enough that I grew up that home life and, and professional life were different and they're not, they're the exact same thing. And I always tell people, in fact, I was just in front of a group yesterday where I felt like when it came to, they missed their goals for the year, yet they rated all of their people at a five. And I'm like, that's a disconnect. Like you all missed your numbers. I said, think of it like your children. The reason that you hold your children accountable is because you love them. You care about them, you want them to be productive members of society, and you don't want them to live in your basement for the rest of your life. It's the same way with like, when I tell you areas where you can improve, I do that because I see potential in you. You can improve, but if I never let you know, that's a problem. We view accountability wrong. We view accountability as a stick. When accountability is a measurement I've been working really hard. Is it getting the results I want or do I need to do something different? And I love what you said about that all these things really just come together. There's not work and family. There's just life. And it's one unified experience that is your life, how you're leading it and how you're leading the people around you, whether they're employees or, or your children. And we'll certainly come back to, to children in, in just a minute. I love the final chapter of your book because again, it's a phrase I use all the time. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And spoiler alert, I'm actually going to share right now a new datage, which is from an upcoming episode of datages that I haven't yet written. And it is, you don't make money by doing something once, you make money by doing the same thing over and over again. And that's a piece of advice that I got from my own father and that he shared with me over and over. And I want to read one more passage from your book that is in this section that I really, really liked. This is your strategy number nine on rinse and repeat. You say the key to success is consistently applying all of your principles and strategies over and over in good times and bad. Can you explain for us the power of consistency and what that means? Oh, I love that you brought up consistency. It's one of my favorite words. I am like on a mission to make consistency sexy. We undervalue a consistency and we're looking, we, we have become a society that is looking for instant gratification. I remember being a kid and having a date on a Friday night and my girlfriends and I would all drink these liquid things and then we'd drop five pounds by Friday and then Saturday, as soon as we, you know, all got together and ate Doritos, we'd be five pounds heavier again. Things just don't work in without doing, luck comes from doing the work day in and day out. And so what I mean in this is I've done the homework for you. I have proven that the methodology works. One of the things I wanted to do was take all the guesswork of what you do when uncertainty hits, but you have to work the formula, whether you see the result in the moment or not and understand it's a cumulative effect. I'll add one more story that I always use on consistency. Years ago, I saw an interview with Gabrielle Reese, the uh, famous volleyball player, and they were interviewing her about staying in such good shape. How do you say, I think she'd ended her career by this point. And she said, that's easy. I work out whether I want to or not. And she said on days that I don't feel like it, my workout isn't all that great, but I do it 
anyway. There are days when I have a workout where I've burned the calories, I've built the muscle, I've done everything I needed to do. So understand with consistency, you know, sometimes you'll fudge a little, you won't be as good or you'll kind of, you know, it won't be as powerful. But the cumulative effect of doing it every single day. And imagine getting everybody in your team doing that. It just makes it work. If you know what you're doing is working, then doing it consistently. I tell people all the time, I really believe I am successful because I am consistent. Well, you said you, you're always trying to make consistency sexy. Yeah. I, my, my catchphrase is consistency is bliss. Yeah. So Right on the same page. Again. Right on the same page. And clearly, you know, you have consistently been working throughout your career to build what is now an amazing body of knowledge and advice to offer, offer to people and a lot of coaching techniques to be able to, to bring them along. Who were your coaches along the way? What were the sources of wisdom that helped instill in you all of these lessons that you've built up over the years? Yeah, you know, that's such a great question. I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I had a lot of adversity in my life. I mean, as most people do, but to date, six male members of my family, including my first husband, all died of uh, addiction. And well, from that, I had to seek a lot of help and a lot of therapy in order to navigate my way through all that. And what I found was just like we said, whether it's professional or personal, so many things that I learned through Al-Anon, so many things that I learned, I took myself to Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to understand the mind, um, you know, the sickness of, of alcoholism, and then just some really good therapists. There were so many lessons in there that I was able to transfer into the business world. But you have to know that when I first went to therapy, I walked into therapy and I said, I am not interested in why this is my parents' fault. I'm not interested in why this is any of my addicts' fault. I wanna know how I got here and what put me here and how I can change the behavior. So I would say that kind of probably my biggest mentor was not looking to blame anybody else but to constantly understand what could be the shift in my own behavior. Now I've had idols beyond that. I mean, I definitely have had amazing leaders show up in my career and, and you know, and people that I have watched and things, but it is kind of, if we're going down the line of the biggest obstacle becomes your opportunity. It is the fact that I look at it now that I was blessed with a lot of early adversity, which made me find a path through. And when I found a path through, I wanted to help others do that. Yeah. And if you've been around so much addiction in your life, it has certainly conditioned you to yeah. prepare, being prepared for uncertainty <laughs> in, so in your personal life, because yeah. there's nothing more unreliable or uncertain than an addict. No, uh, absolutely. Absolutely nothing. And it's, it's interesting that you would bring that up because that is the reason that as I got into the very last parts of the book, I wanted to talk about it in the personal uh, sense because yeah. And you know, it's really amazing too, that for years I didn't talk about it very openly, but it's amazing the the, the breadth and the depth of which people are impacted by addiction. And you're right. It's the biggest uncertainty probably out there. Well, and I commend you for getting to a point in your life where you're comfortable to be able to share such personal things. And back to, you know, you talked about Brene Brown, vulnerability, uh, you know, putting yourself out there in a way, not just for your friends and family, but for your clients and for the, the whole world that takes courage. And I'm sure that that has really helped you to touch people's lives in a much more meaningful way than if you were just talking about the corporate world 
and how to be more successful and how to make more money. These are lessons that, as, as we've talked about, can be woven through every aspect of your life and be critically important to your life. Absolutely. And, you know, it's when you coach people, you realize you're not coaching their professional lives solely. You're coaching their personal lives. I mean, yeah. we're human beings, right? And so what happens personally for us impacts us professionally and, and vice versa. And you're a mom as well. Mm -hmm. So how can you take the lessons that you've learned and what you've communicated and thrive, apply them more broadly, as you're saying, and how can we as parents help our children to develop resilient lives and resilient mindsets to stand up to uncertainty in their own lives? First of all, I think it's so important for us as parents to let children learn lessons and learn them early. If it were, if it were any piece of advice, it is that, is that you will learn the lesson somewhere in your life, learning it early. And so being there to support your children, but not enable your children. I also think that helping your children have a vision and live to their values. I think as they enter school and you start getting a lot of peer pressure, talking to them about their values, what's important to them, where do they see themselves? And then you're not going to tell, you're not going to be able to control whether your kids take a drink or smoke a little pot or hang out with the wrong kids. If you can continue to revisit their vision, talk about their values, and then ask them, how are the things that they're doing fitting that and supporting that versus not you teach them to think but kids are going to derail a little bit and fall into a you know fall into a hole or two but that's okay I, the last thing i'm going to say is be truthful with them the difference i say between my upbringing and versus those of, of my own kids is my mother tried to protect us and she didn't want us to really know what was going on but kids aren't stupid and we just repeated the behaviors and i think that versus sitting down and saying this person loves you cares about you but i think being honest with them kids can handle a lot they're amazing but, Kids are um, resilient and they're also intuitive. The minute you think yeah. that a, a child doesn't know what's really yeah. going on, they know. you're the one who's being fooled, not them. Yeah. And something that is so important to that is that if understand that they're intuitive and if you try to tell them something different, they trust you as an adult and they yeah. will not learn to listen to their intuition. And I think that is one of the greatest gifts we give our children. If I can raise my children with the right values, we were always pretty hard on work ethic in our house, but let them trust, learn to listen to and trust their own gut. When they can learn to listen to their intuition, that is what is going to guide them when we are no longer around. It seems like the same framework that you've it, given to so many CEOs. It's, it's vision, it, it, values, yeah. mission. It, you're basically... Uh, raising your children to be CEOs of their own lives. Uh, absolutely. 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 Yeah. As we've talked today, Meredith, I really enjoyed reading you as an author, but I can now see having had the chance to meet you and engage with you, how much more you have to bring to the table all in addition to that, and through dialogue, engagement, communication, it's really clear that you've developed that, that skill set very acutely over all of the work that you've done. I really want to make sure that we share with the friends and family how they can connect with you further. How, where can they get your book? How can they engage with you? And, and if somebody wanted to go so far as to bring in Meredith Powell to come into their company and work with you, is that something they can do? 
Absolutely. So I am a big believer, build your network, it will change your life. So if you connect with me, I will definitely connect with you. You can find me at my website, which is valuespeaker.com, just the words valuespeaker.com. I tend to live on the LinkedIn platform more than anywhere else, but I am on all the social platforms. And it really helps me when people reach out, they ask questions and things. I like to stay in touch with the mindset of what's going on with people right now. So please do not hesitate. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing those points of contact. And I really encourage the friends and family to take advantage. We'll put links to each of your socials and everything on our bulletin board on the Datages website as well, so that people can find you. This has just been a, a real delight for me. It was sort of a, an early Christmas gift to be able to spend this time with you. I hope to stay connected with you as well. I also believe in the value of networking and am excited and, and grateful and thankful to have you now as, as a part of my network and as a part of the Datages friends and family. Uh, as you know, one of the things that we celebrate here on, on Datages is the legacy of the, the bad dad joke and trying to make humor a part of every day of life. And so I found a joke that I want to share that is, I think, very much on topic today. Okay. Uh, so here it goes. Meredith, did I tell you that I'm going to open a shop to fix broken watches? No. I'm going to call it uncertain times. <laughs> That's great. That's pretty bad. Yeah, pretty bad. It's great in its terribleness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Meredith, again, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and spending it with the Datages friends and family. Thank you so much. It's been a great interview. I've loved the conversation. Likewise. And until next time, I'll remind the friends and family, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. <laughs> <laughs>